Good morning, Grace. Turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 3. We started last week and we stopped in the middle of verse 6. Ezra chapter 3, if you're visiting or you're not familiar with where we're at in Ezra, remember uh, God used Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt to Pharaoh. Joshua took over, led them into the promised land. Then you get to the book of Judges where it says that people did what was right in their own eyes. They began turning away from the Lord. They cried out for a king and God gave them King Saul. And then David became king and then David's son Solomon became king. And then several of Solomon's sons became king. And in time, uh, there were a lot of bad kings and a few good kings. The nation was divided into Israel and Judah, and eventually both Israel and Judah turned away from serving the Lord, and they ended up in captivity, in exile, in Babylon. In Ezra chapter 1, we saw several weeks ago that God in His mercy brought His people back to the promised land, and we saw last week they began building uh, the altar so they could offer sacrifices on it and start restoring corporate worship. So that's where we're at in Ezra chapter 3. Let's pray one more time before we begin. Father, your word says, as Greg just read it, that you are good, your steadfast love endures forever, and your faithfulness goes to all generations. And many of us here would tip our hat to that and say we know it's true. But God, we ask you this morning that you would impress it upon our hearts even more. So that the gospel would penetrate the nooks and crannies of our hearts. So that we would believe your promise once again that you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. And your faithfulness goes to all generations. Do it by the power of the Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week in Ezra 3, we saw the restoration of corporate worship or the beginning stages of it. We saw last week that we can worship God whenever anything is happening in our lives. That's what the nation of Israel was doing in Ezra 3. Remember last week they were aware of their sinfulness. They knew they were sent to exile because of their sin. They came back and offered burnt offerings and were worshiping. We also saw that they were scared fearful of the nations around them, and they worshiped. We saw that they were weak and fragile, and they worshiped. And we saw that they worshiped according to the book, to God's word. They were being meticulous about worshiping according to what God had said in the law. And so they offered the appropriate sacrifices and celebrated the appointed feast. But we stopped in the middle of verse 6 last week. Today we will pick up with the nation of Israel worshiping, but there's another component to their worship. They will now begin rebuilding the temple, the temple that King Solomon had built, the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians when they conquered Israel and took them away into exile. Israel will begin restoring the temple First, by rebuilding the foundation of the temple. Now, you can't miss the repetition that's found here in this chapter. There's an emphasis on the foundation of the temple, the foundation of the house of the Lord. These phrases get used over and over. It is a major theme in this chapter, but the emphasis points in another direction. The focus of the chapter is not on the mechanics and the details of the foundation, but on the joy that accompanied 
the laying of the foundation of the temple. And the joy that accompanied the laying of the foundation of the temple was rooted in and pointing to the character of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. So the focus of the chapter, even though it talks about it, is not on the mechanics and the details of the foundation that they were building. Rather, the emphasis is on the joy that accompanied God's people as they were laying the foundation of the temple, and that joy was rooted in and pointing to the character of God. Now, before we look at the building of the foundation, let's get to the foundation, the big idea of this sermon, which is this. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. I hope you've heard that before. I hope you are familiar with that. I hope you have bought into that statement. I hope that's the big idea of your life. I hope that is your life statement. Why? Because that's our mission statement here at Grace. That's our foundation, if you will. It's why we exist. It's why we do what we do here. And I think it is exactly why Israel was restoring corporate worship and rebuilding the temple by laying the foundation again. The 42,360 Israelites who returned from Babylonian captivity must have looked at each other occasionally. They must have emailed each other occasionally. They must have texted one another occasionally with these words. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. Surely the priests, Jeshua and Zerubbabel that we saw last week, surely they would have told the nation, hey Israel, we exist to ignite a passion in every person, every nation, race, tribe and tongue to glorify and enjoy Yahweh everywhere and in everything. Surely the Israelites knew that they were to ignite a passion in the next generation to glorify and enjoy Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. Surely the Israelites knew that they were called by Yahweh to ignite a passion in the nations that surrounded them to glorify and enjoy God. Surely Israel knew that they were to be a city on a hill that pointed the nations to Yahweh. They did know that. And that's why they were beginning to lay the foundation of the temple again. Because they knew that their life statement was just like John Piper's recently tweeted life statement where he said this, summoning the world to serious joy in a sovereign Savior. That's why the people of God have always existed to summon the world to serious joy in a sovereign Savior, to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything that you do. We are called to be the city of God here on the central coast in the city of Santa Maria. We're called to be a city on a hill and we are called to have a kind of joy that makes our neighbors wonder, what's going on? 
Now let me show you where I'm getting all of that in the text as we look at God's word. So look at verses 6 through 7 again and hear the words of the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, let me tell you how this chapter progresses so that you know where we're going in this sermon. The focus now will be on the people giving their finances to help build the foundation so that they can joyfully sing and worship so that God would be glorified and seen as glorious. So get the progression here. There's giving taking place first. There's building and there's serving. There's worshiping and singing with joy. And all of that is leading to glorifying the God that they serve. They wanted to tell the nations who Yahweh was and what he was like. And next week we'll see that their worship does draw their neighbors in, but not in the way that they wanted to. You got to come back next week to see what happens. But verse 6 says the nation started offering sacrifices in the seventh month. In the Jewish calendar, this was around September or October. And they start off by offering sacrifices, as we saw last week. But this is not full-blown worship yet. Because verse 6 says the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. It's not full-blown worship by the book, the law, like it was in Solomon's day. It wasn't like the temple worship in Solomon's day, but it's a start for them. They know from God's word that they need to rebuild the temple that was destroyed. So they start passing the offering plate to buy the materials so they can begin working on the foundation. They know that if they are ever to summon the world to serious joy in a sovereign Savior, then they must rebuild the temple by starting work on the foundation. But they also know that this costs a lot of money. They need Benjamins. Not Jewish men named Benjamin. I'm sure there were many. They need stacks of Benjamins, stacks of $100 bills, lots and lots of Benjamins. So everyone pitched in and gave money to the Masons and the carpenters so they could begin work on the foundation. And they paid the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring some of their cedar trees from up northwest. Now here's what's interesting. Solomon did the exact same thing when he built the temple. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 5. Solomon paid Hiram, king of Tyre, with food in exchange for cedar trees so that he could build the temple. So both times that the temple was being built, Israel traded food for trees. That means they must have made some really mean cookies. Because the Tyrians are like, we're interested in this. You give us food, we like your cooking, we'll give you some of our trees. But don't miss this. The Israelites gave financially to start the building project. They broke open their piggy banks. They reached down deep into their pockets because they were convinced of this. We exist to ignite a passion 
in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. But the money collection didn't happen overnight. It took a while to pass the offering plate, if you will. When you have 42,360 church members scattered all over the nation of Israel, it takes a while to take up the offering. And it took a while for all those Israelite cookies to make their way up northwest to Tyre and Sidon, and then for those trees to make it down and into the city of Joppa, which is why they actually don't get around to laying the foundation of the temple until the second year after their return. Look at verses 8 through 9. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites, from 20 years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Now what's interesting here is that Solomon also started building the temple in the second month. So it could be that the nation really wants to follow Solomon's pattern here. They really want to rebuild the temple by the book. Or it just may be that it took a while for all the money and the supplies to come in. And it probably had something to do with the fact that this would have been in April and May when they began laying the foundation, which was the beginning of the dry season. And if you're going to build something, it makes sense to wait for the rainy season season to end and then start building in the dry season. For whatever reason, they waited. So here we have the practicalities of worship in verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, they gave food and money to the cause of rebuilding the temple. And in verses 8 and 9, they appointed Levites to serve in the temple, and they appointed supervisors to spearhead the construction project. Now, we may be tempted to dismiss these verses because they seem boring to us. Now, if you're a contractor, your ears may have just perked up with verses 7 through 9. If you're a contractor, you do construction work, you build houses or something along those lines, then Ezra chapter 3 verses 7 through 9 may have just become your new life verse. You like this chapter. You like this verse. Ezra chapter 3 verses 7 and through 9 is like the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of a typical day at Home Depot. Buying lumber, appointing supervisors, construction site. Some of you men just suddenly took a keen interest in the book of Ezra. But for others, we might not get the warm fuzzies when we read these verses. But please, don't see these verses as throwaway verses. Because without these verses, you don't get full-blown corporate worship. Without all this talk about money and trees and supervisors and the construction site, you don't get full-blown corporate worship, which is what they were building towards. Without these Home Depot verses, you won't have Israel saying, we exist to summon the world to serious joy in a sovereign Savior. So don't toss these verses out like an old piece of two-by-four. You need these verses. I need these verses. Why? 
Because these verses are very instructive for us. These verses are very instructive. Why? Because you need money. You need people. You need resources to make corporate worship happen. We need money here at Grace. We need people. We need resources in order to make corporate worship happen every Sunday here at Grace. So understand this. If you don't give here by giving of your time and your talent and your treasure, then we may have to close the doors. Please let me say that again. If you don't give here of your time, your talent, and your treasure, then we may have to close the doors. These verses may not warm your heart, but they will convict it. We have a mortgage to pay. We have an electric bill to pay. If we don't support the ministry here, there will be no ministry here. And if you come here and all you do is graze and feed and enjoy the music and the preaching and you never give anything in return, then you don't understand the gospel. Because the God that we serve is a giving God and he gave his son for sinners like us. You need to refocus your gaze on Jesus once again and linger over the gospel because only the gospel can motivate you to give. We're not here to guilt you into giving and serving. We don't want to do that. We want you to linger over the gospel so that you can say this with us here at Grace. We exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. And only the gospel can cause you to show that you believe that by the giving of your time, talent, and treasure. Now let's move on because this chapter just gets better and better. Look at verses 10 through 13. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Now, remember, the Babylonians had totally wiped out Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground. The temple area was a mess. It looked like an episode of hoarders. There's just junk everywhere. And when Babylon leveled the temple area and carted off Israel, carted off the people of God into exile, all appearances on the surface pointed to an ultimate Babylonian victory over Yahweh. It seemed like WrestleMania with King Kong Babylon triumphing over Yahweh. Babylon was now the A-N-E heavyweight champion, the ancient Near Eastern heavyweight champion. But who would have thought as the smoke rose to heaven and Israel was carted off to Babylon, who would have thought that Jerusalem could ever be rebuilt? Who would have thought that Israel would ever make it back home? Who would have thought that corporate worship could ever happen in Jerusalem again? Well, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, knew, and he spoke through the prophet Jeremiah to bring hope to those people who were in exile in Babylon. And one of the things that the prophet Jeremiah said would happen when Israel returned was that they would sing a certain song. 
Jeremiah told Israel while they're in captivity in Babylon that they would come back and he even tipped them off ahead of time as to what song they would sing when they returned. Listen to this from Jeremiah chapter 33 verses 10 through 11. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Well, what does Ezra 3.11 say? And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. As we saw in Ezra 1, God's word controls history because history is his story. Jeremiah told them, you're going to sing a certain song when you return. And when they returned, they sang that song. Now, there's a couple of lessons here for us. First, worship is not about style. Corporate worship is not about style or your preference for your style or my preference. When it comes to how we worship through music, the style is not important. Notice we have two instruments listed here in verse 10 of Ezra chapter 3. Two instruments. One that is central to traditional worship, trumpets, they had a horn section, and one that is central to contemporary worship, cymbals, loud crushing cymbals. Now, before you start to say that we should just take these two instruments because that's all they have in the text, let me ask you, do you really want to worship here on Sunday morning with just trumpets and cymbals? Not me. Well, apparently the Israelites liked it. But notice that we don't get a style description here. We don't know if it was jazz. Or bluegrass. Or country. Or rock. We only get the instruments listed. Why? Because style is not important when it comes to worship. What is important? That leads us to lesson number two. Worship is about Jesus. Worship is not about style, the God of style that many of us worship. Worship is about Jesus. Notice the content of their song. It's the character of God. The content, the focus of their lyrics was on the character of God. Yahweh is good. Yahweh's love remains. Yahweh's love is steadfast. Yahweh's love is eternal. Yahweh is faithful to his people. And what appropriate words for Israel to sing 
It was the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the faithfulness of God that brought Israel out of Babylonian captivity. Their sin and their rebellion could not change his love. God's love for his people in every generation is never ending. You can't out God's grace. Grace, he is good. His love endures forever. Israel totally blew it. But God restored him because that's the kind of God that he is. Now that should make you want to sing Ezra chapter 3 verse 11 right now. Why? Because aren't our lives like Israel sometimes? Seems like our situation is hopeless. We mess up our lives because of sin. We get stuck with the consequences of our sin. We have messy situations. Like a marriage that seems beyond repair. Or a wayward child. Or a dysfunctional family in disarray. Just a big pile of mess. A big pile of sin. And then comes the God of Ezra 3.11 to do what he does best. Understand this grace, and I've told you many times, God specializes in redemption. It's his forte. He is an expert at it. He takes messy, muddy, terrible, sinful situations, impossible situations, and he can turn them around for our good and his glory. The raw material that God uses to bring you good and to manifest his glory and his grace, the raw material that he uses is your mess, your failure, your impossible situation, your trial, your tribulation. You just give it to him and watch what he can do. Some of you need to hear the lyrics to the number one song that was playing on all the radio stations in Israel in 537 B.C., So let's read those lyrics one more time. Look at verse 11. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. You can't miss the theme of joyful worship here. Verse 11, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Verse 11, all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. Verse 12, many shouted aloud for joy. Verse 13, the sound of the joyful shout. Verse 13, the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. I think these verses are proof that Israel would have said, On that day, we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. Israel knew they were called to summon the world 
to serious joy in a sovereign Savior. And that's how it was in the Old Testament. It was a come and see model. Now in the New Testament, it's a go and tell. But for them, it was a come and see. And you see that in how loud they were. They knew they were called to summon the world to serious joy in a sovereign Savior. You see that by how loud they were. They were so overwhelmed with Yahweh's faithfulness to them. They were so overwhelmed with Yahweh's goodness. They were so overwhelmed that you could hear them far away. They were so overwhelmed that their neighbors must have wondered, what in the world is going on? But not everyone is rejoicing here at the temple dedication. The altar had been built. They were offering sacrifices on that. We saw that last week. The temple foundation has been laid. It seems like an opportunity to rejoice. But there are some Israelites present who saw the glory of Solomon's temple back in the day when they were young, before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it and burned it to the ground. And how do they react? Verse 12 says, they wept with a loud voice. It's so sad. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise found in Jeremiah 33, and it's sour grapes for some. Instead of singing, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel, these people are crying over the glory days. Listen, if they were crying because of their sin and rebellion that it landed them in Babylon... And they're crying because the temple was destroyed. If they're repenting, that's one thing. But I think they're just grieving the old days. I think they are grieving over the past. Churches do that sometimes. We talk about how good it used to be when so-and-so was here. When we sang those songs, when we participated in that ministry, when it looked a certain way, churches are notorious for living in the past and resisting change. Be thankful for the old days, but don't despise what God is doing now. Worship changes, styles change. Some of you would never wear the hair that you wore 20 years ago. Some of you can't because you don't have hair now. (laughs) Styles change. Services change. Pastors change. But it's always appropriate to worship the God whose love never changes. As our own Michelle Winger, our children's director, says here, all I know is change. Today is the day of salvation. God is moving today at Grace Baptist Church. Sure, he may have moved in mighty ways in the past, but are you rejoicing today? Are you involved right now? Are you plugged in? Are you delighting in what he is doing here right now? Thank him for the past, but get with his program today. It's always appropriate to sing these lyrics. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And if you don't believe me, then maybe Matthew Henry can convince you with the words from his commentary on this song in Ezra 3. And Matthew Henry wrote his commentary a long time ago when God was moving in mighty ways a long time ago. But I think his words are relevant today. He says this, The singing of that everlasting hymn which will never be out of date 
and to which our tongues should never be out of tune. God is good, and his mercy endureth forever. Let all the streams of mercy be traced up to the fountain. Singing of his goodness never goes out of date. Our tongues should always be tuned to sing that God is good. Why? Because of his mercy, because of his steadfast love, because of Jesus. And that's why we must trace the stream of mercy to the fountain of mercy, because it's all about Jesus. We summon the world to serious joy in a sovereign Savior. It's all about Jesus Christ. We give money here at Grace because it's all about Jesus. We give of our resources, not because we want to have an awesome church campus, but we give of our resources because of Jesus. We give so that we can pay off our mortgage, so that we can pay the electric bill, but we give all of those ways so that people can come and worship Jesus. We give because we want Jesus to be glorified. We give because we believe, like the Israelites, that we exist to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. We want to spread a passion for God's glory here at Grace. So please give of your time and give of your talent and give of your treasure so that more and more people will come here and glorify and enjoy God here in our city. We're not here to make a name for ourselves in this city. We're here to make Jesus famous. So please, if you invite people here, and I hope you do, don't highlight the preacher or the music or the coffee or the various ministries. Tell people first that we love Jesus here. Tell them that Grace Baptist Church makes much of Jesus. And the icing on the cake is that we have some great music and great coffee and great ministries and great people and hopefully some decent preaching. But please tell them that we want to make much of Jesus because that's what we're about. I hope the name of Jesus is what people hear the most about this church. And so we give financially and we build buildings and we worship with enthusiasm, full of joy, precisely because we want people to see Jesus as glorious. That's the pattern. You give, you build, you serve, you worship so that Jesus is mightily glorified. We're here to summon the world to serious joy in a sovereign Savior. And we do that because we are being built on the foundation. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, we're being built on the foundation, Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. We summon the world to serious joy because that's what we're called to do. And if you don't believe me, then maybe the Apostle Peter will convince you. Because he lived a long time ago when God was doing mighty things then. But maybe his words will convince you now. You know Peter, the one guy among the disciples who knew what it was to mess up his life and yet get restored. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May we be a church that summons the world to serious joy in a sovereign Savior. May we be a church that makes much of Jesus. May we be a church that has a kind of joy that makes our neighbors think, what in the world is going on in there on Sunday mornings? Or as Gloria Furman recently put on Twitter, may others hear our holy, stubborn song and join along. May others hear our holy, stubborn song and join along. Listen, we sing stubborn songs here because we are captivated by the God who loves us. We are stubborn in our pursuit of joy in Jesus and in our worship of him because of what he has done for us. So I think it's a good time to stand and then I'll pray and then we will sing another one of those stubborn songs hoping that people will hear and they will join along with us as we sing of his great renown. Let's pray.